Thank you, brother. Please find your way. Romans chapter nine. I love this time of year, springtime, life to the dead. Everything's growing in the resurrection. Oh, we just think about how much Christ loves us and what he did for us. I just love this time of year. Such a beautiful time of year. So I'm not sure if you have picked up on the on a theme that I've been dripping into the sermons over the past four weeks, but there has been one. We are to reverently accept the fact that God is greater than we are. He knows more than we do. God knows what he is doing, and everything he does will be consistent with his character. In other words, we must understand that we are not God, and we must submit to him. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Amen? And if we're honest with ourselves, we would confess one of the biggest struggles we have in our walk is trying not to be God. Just me, right? Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> or letting God be God. You, you know, that's tough. We go through a trial and we're like, okay, God, here's how this needs to happen. Here's how I can straighten all this out. Let me help you. I know you don't understand. We're ready to jump right in there, you know, or, or a storm in life hits us and we're ready to tell God, all right, Long enough, take the storm away. I get the point. I get it. You know, God, you're just carrying us a little too far. We're ready to be God. I saw a writing on the back of a truck. It said, entrust we God. Hey, he's got a point, you know, entrust we God. Even though it says it on our money, we do have a hard time trusting in God and resting the fact that God knows what he is doing. But trusting in God is key to a worship-filled life. Trusting in God is the key. So as we continue in chapter 9 and learn more about God and what we have seen, what we've seen over the last few weeks is that Paul has been making a case for defending God's promise to Israel. We, we have the church in Rome, and they are seeing many more Gentiles than, than coming to faith than Jews. And so the people are ifing God. They, they are saying, if all these Gentiles are coming to faith in the Messiah, then does that mean that God's promises to Israel has, has failed, as his word failed? So Paul takes them back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, and he shows, them, shows that God's promises were consistent with what was taking place because his promises were not made to the nation of Israel, but to the true Israelites, not to those born in Abraham's bloodline, but those born of faith like Abraham's. And that means that the true Israel is made up of all who believe. The true church is for the Jew and the Gentile together. And so Paul explains that, that the way the promises of God had come true is through divine election. It has never been through natural means such as bloodlines or human will. He has fulfilled his promises through his divine decree and initiative. We read in verse nine, it says, for this is what the promise said, and that this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is God, and he chose the nation of Israel to be the bloodline of the Messiah. God chose to do that. And we will see in chapter 11 
that when Paul's talking about Israel, the remnant that we spoke of last week, it is the Jews who have, it, this is the Jews who have believed in Jesus. And that group is created by grace, not by works. The remnant is created by grace, not by works. Paul wanted them to understand that it's all by grace, all by God's sovereign choice. The remnants of the, the Jews was not a group of Jews who have managed to say, be obedient enough to the Torah or, or somehow uh, avoided the verdict of, of being disobedient from God. The true Israelite is not the one that, quote, kept enough of the law or did it in such a way where God said, oh, you know, that's good enough. You know, that, that's pretty good. You're one of mine. He's a pretty good guy. No, the remnant are the ones who came to God the same way Paul did. Paul says in Galatians 2.19, I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. And that text really brought to life when we read about the twins in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, there is a remnant. There is a nation because of God's mercy and compassion not because a few were able to keep the law. So Paul in verse 6 through 13 answers the question, has God's word failed? And the answer is no, it did not. God chose to work through Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose to work through Jacob and not Esau. And, though the, and through these choices, we see that God's purposes are being carried out through his people. And that brings us up to the next question about God that Paul has to answer. If God is doing the choosing, if God does the choosing, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So the question is, is there injustice on God's part? You know, this is the same type of question that that Paul answered back in chapter three and verse five, if you remember, they said, but if he said, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is God unrighteous because he judges? Paul gives the same answer as he does back then, but by no means, he says, by no means. It is God who is the judge of the world question him listen god judges sin and is bound to punish evil he is he is just so when we see god judge any sin we should never say or judge anyone we should never say well you know that's not right or that's not fair we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks we should never do that the problem we have when we read about god's judgment is that we think that God is judging people who are not guilty or who should not be judged. Listen, as we read the word, 
And when we see interaction between God and mankind and God judge, God's not dealing with innocent, sinless people. He's not. The word is speaking about sinful human beings. So keep that in mind as you go through this text. Keep that in mind when he says, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. What does Paul do? He takes us back to Moses. He says, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends on not human will, but on God who has mercy. Paul is now quoting Exodus 33, 19. What do we do? What do we say? We ask, what's going on back then? Why did Paul bring up that quote? So let's get a little picture of what's going on there. Moses is up on the mountain, and he asks to see God's glory. And we all know that God hid Moses in between the rocks as he passed by, you know, to let his glory go by. But do you know what God did first before he passed by? Here's what he did. God proclaimed to Moses his name. In other words, if you understand the name of God, if you can wrap your mind around the name of God, then you have seen his glory. Exodus 33, 18. Listen, Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And he says that right after he says, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Does that sound right? Show me your glory. Okay, here's my name. That's something we should always keep in mind. Names in the scriptures are important. We can see that the names of that, that the names of God in the scriptures are the manifestation of his glory. His, his names reveal who he is as well as aspect of his character, promises, authority, and power. And because God is so great, as we can see, as we will see, one name is not enough to fully portray all of who he is. Another example of a name, got to go back to Exodus 3. Listen, Moses is on the mountain standing before the burning bush. God called him out of the bush. He says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God tells Moses, he says, look, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says to God, he says, Hey, if I come to the people of, of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I was thinking, wouldn't God be enough? You know, God sent me. Yeah, what's his name? Is that a question they're going to ask? What's his name? They know what to ask, though. 
What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So here again, we have the name Yahweh. Yahweh explained with words, just like before. Who is God? God says, I am. I am who I am. You know, this focuses on his, on the existence of God. That is, God exists without any outside, anything outside himself determining his personality or power. God exists without anything outside himself determining his personality and power. The name I am displays his glory. He exists. Now, when Paul uses the name that, that gives another explanation of who God is, when he quotes Exodus 33, 19, when God says, hey, I will be gracious, like we just read, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. This focus of this name right here is on the gracious actions of God. That is, God does what he does without anything outside himself determining his choices. He will have mercy to whomever he will have mercy. So we have names that gives us a glimpse of who God is. Yahweh, I am. God exists without anything outside himself determining his personality or power. And when Moses asked to see God's glory, God did it with a name. Yahweh, God of mercy. God of mercy. God does what? He does without anything outside himself determining his choices. You know, we have to understand who God is to the best of our ability to what the word will give us so we can better understand what he's doing. These names are important. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and show mercy to whom he will show mercy. So you, do you know what's going on or, or, or what, what has happened when God said that, when he said that to Moses? When he said, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, do you, do you know what's going on back in Exodus? Exodus? Listen, Moses is on the mountain. The people, the nation of Israel, is down there at the foot of the mountain building a golden calf. We all know the story in Exodus. But let's look at some details. It's been three months since God freed the nation of Israel from Egypt. Three months. All of the people were at the foot of the Mount, of Mount Sinai. They had witnessed the glory of God's descending upon them down on the mountain. They heard the Ten Commandments. They all heard it. Now, the next day, watch this. God commanded Moses to ascend the mountain for 40 days where he would teach him all the laws and present him with the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were carved. Moses goes up the mountain. He promises to be back in 40 days. The people miscalculate the days that Moses is gone. They didn't have Google. The rumor mill gets cranked up, right? 
Some believe Moses is dead. Is he coming back? What are we going to do? We're brought out here to die. The rumor mill gets cranked up. They're looking for a new leader. And while they're looking for a new, new leader, what's the best thing to do? You go round up all the gold and you start building a golden calf. That's, that, that, that really helps. So they build a golden calf and the party begins. Moses then came down the mountain with his disciple Joshua. They enter in the camp and what do they see? A drunken revelry, blasphemy, adultery, idolatry. Moses is outraged. He took the tablets that were given to him by God and he hurled them to the ground and shattered them. Listen, it had not even been six months since the people had seen all the miracles that God had performed in Egypt. It had not even been six months since they had been free from bondage. They all saw and knew that the miracles and the freedom that they were given were of God because of God. It was all of Yahweh. I am. It was I am's glory that was on the mountain that they could see. And yet they chose to sin. They chose to worship a man-made idol instead of Yahweh, the one true living God. Now that you have that picture of what's going on, keep that thought in mind. Snapshot back to, the, to, to our text. Paul's answering the question. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God, God's part? He says, by no means. And how did Paul answer that question? He took him back. He said, for Moses, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How did we get to a question like that? Why are we questioning God's justice? Again, it started with, does God's word fail just because, you know, uh, God has brought in the Gentiles into the fold? Has God's, word, has God's word failed just because the nation of Israel did not believe? <clears throat> God has kept his promise from the beginning, and he did so by choosing the bloodline of the Messiah. Now, just because God chose one over the other for the bloodline, does that mean that there is injustice on God's part is God not righteous Paul's answer is no there's no injustice now back to Mount Sinai as we think about that question that Paul's answering God chose some to carry on the nation of Israel that day in Mount Sinai he chose God is looking down at the drunken revelry the blasphemy the adultery and idolatry he's looking down on that and at that moment, God had every right to take every one of them out. Every one of them were guilty. But instead, God had mercy. God had compassion. The fact that God let anyone live is amazing. The fact that God did not rain down judgment at that very moment on all of the guilty people is absolutely incredible. God had every right to judge. But instead... He had mercy. He had compassion. It's important that we see this, that God withheld instant judgment on that day. God withheld. We have to understand that. 
Instead of judgment, instead of righteous judgment, we see compassion and mercy on that day. Not that anyone deserved compassion and mercy. Not one. As we have seen, far from it. They all deserve judgment. And because God did not apply judgment at that very moment, and because God did not take everyone out at that very moment, his promises are kept. And the nation of Israel will continue. It could have been the end right there. And the bloodline to the Messiah will continue. God is righteous, yes. And he also showed compassion and mercy on some. You see, the fact that God chose one and not the other seems to indicate that God is unrighteous. Hey, why did you choose them and not them? That's why we had that question. Is there any unrighteousness with God? Is God unjust? Paul gives the answer. By no means, certainly not. May it never be, not at all. It is unthinkable that the holy God should ever commit an unrighteous act. See, when it comes to election, when God does the choosing, we always look at God the wrong way. We always do. Listen, election is always totally a matter of grace. It is a matter of love. It is a matter of compassion. It's a matter of mercy. If God acted only on the basis of righteousness, that is right then, a just act, of who deserves it, no one would survive. No one would ever be saved, not one. All of us, just like the people at the bottom of Mount Sinai, we can point our finger, don't do it. Got three coming back. Listen, all of us deserve condemnation because of our sin, not mercy. That's why when we see our sin, when we understand our guilt, we, we can sing amazing grace. When we, when we see our sin and understand the love that God has given us, we could sing amazing love. How can it be that my king would die for me? We are all guilty, just like they were. The reference in Exodus 33 deals with Israel's idolatry while Moses was on the mount receiving the law. The whole nation deserved to be destroyed, yet God allowed many to live, but purely because of his grace, and mercy so that his promises will be fulfilled through the nation of Israel. You know, this may not sound right to man, you know, that God judges some and not others at that time, but you know, we should not be upset because God killed 3000. Instead, we should be in awe that anyone lived. But Paul quoted Exodus 33, 19 to show us that God's mercy and compassion are extended, are extended accordingly to God's will and not man's will. That was God's choice to save and keep the nation of Israel going so his word would not fail. What we have to know is this, <clears throat> is that the glory of God to be gracious is to be gracious to whomever he pleases apart from any constraint originating outside his own will. God is God. We're back to that. God is God. Another way to put it is that sovereign freedom is essential to God's name and his glory. Yahweh, I am. God exists without anything outside himself determining his personality or power. Yahweh, God of mercy. 
God does what he does without anything outside himself determining his choices. God is completely free from the constraints of his creation. The inclinations of his will move in directions that he alone determines. Whatever influences appear to change his will are, are influences which ultimately he has ordained. It is all of God. His choice to show mercy to one person and not to another is a choice that originates in the mystery of his sovereign will. It is a mystery to us, and we don't understand it all. But it's his sovereign will, not in the will of anything else. Not anything else. Here in Exodus, we see this self-determining freedom of God is his name and his glory. You see that? His self-determined freedom. He made that choice. And it's all in his name and glory. We must know this. If God ever surrendered the sovereignty of his freedom in dispensing his mercy, he would cease to be all glorious. He would no longer be Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He is who he is. This is an attribute he does not share. God does the choosing. He does the calling. It's him who calls. We see it in John 8, John 9, 1 Corinthians 1, Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians 1, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, on and on and on. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Why? For his glory. It's for his glory. So back out. Helicopter view of what we're seeing in this section of Romans. We have to keep this in mind. We got to keep reminding ourselves what God's doing here so we can see the big picture. Paul's continuing the story of Israel from Abraham to the present day, right? Started with the patriarchs. Now he has us up to, to the Exodus. And when he gets to the end of chapter 11, we will see that God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles through Israel. He's telling that whole story. So keep that in mind as you're going through these next, uh, for the, through these three chapters. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All right, so we covered that. God is completely free from the constraints of his creation. The inclination of his will moves in directions that he alone determines. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God is speaking through Moses again, this time to Pharaoh, right? Paul's quoting what? Exodus 9, 16 this time. Again, we got to ask, what's going on back there? Why did he quote this? Listen as I read Exodus. I'm going to read Exodus 9, 13 through 16. Listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This is important. Listen to verse 15. For by now, I could have. 
This is God speaking, right? For now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. By now, I could have, God said. As with Israel, after the golden calf, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt were guilty and deserved wrath at that very moment. Pharaoh is guilty. It says here that God could have punished him at that very moment. He could have cut him off instantly. Verse 16. But, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God had the right and would be just if he had punished Pharaoh at once. But instead, God made him stand or raised him up rather than cutting him off instantly. <clears throat> Many read this text is that the reason Pharaoh was ever born was so God could harden his heart and show his power. That's not exactly what the scriptures say here. If we read verses 15 and 16, we can clearly see the point that the scriptures are making. That is, despite Pharaoh's arrogance in opposing God's plan to set Israel free, despite that, God has not struck him dead on the spot. He could have, but it's allowed him to go on. From that point on, he's I'm allowing you to go on, hardening his heart. As God did with Israel, he withheld instant judgment. He also allowed Pharaoh to stand. He raised him up. He said, I could take you out right now, but I'm going to raise you up. And the long-term effect, what was the effect of that, of not instantly cutting him off, would be the spreading of the news of God's power and reputation. That's the point. The word says to show you my power so that my name, names are important, may be proclaimed in all the earth. God has withheld instant judgment in order that mercy may spread into the world, in order that the gospel would go unto the world. For the scripture says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul, Paul puts that little closing statement right there, doesn't he? He says, so then, so then, after what I have said, after you have gone back and searched the scriptures, know this, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. When it comes to the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, we must understand who Pharaoh is and where he stood. The scriptures say that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart several times before this point in the text. And that God hardened Pharaoh's heart even further, allowing the last few plagues to come on Egypt. And the purpose was bringing God full, full, God's full glory into view. Pharaoh and Egypt had brought these judgments on themselves with 400 years of slavery and mass murder. Since the wages of sin is death, Pharaoh and Egypt had horribly sinned against God 
And it would have been just if God had completely annihilated Egypt and Pharaoh and everyone there. So as we see, God hardening Pharaoh's heart was not unjust. God bringing additional plagues against Egypt was not unjust. The plagues, as terrible as they were, actually demonstrated God's mercy and not completely destroying Egypt, which would have been perfectly a, a perfectly just penalty. What was the question in the verse? Is God unjust? By no means. He's not. Mercy is the key in these verses. When you read this text, mercy is the key. God showed mercy at the, in the Exodus. God showed mercy at Mount Sinai. Listen, God didn't do all this because he has some pride issue to deal with, right? I'll choose who I want to choose. I'm God. You can't do anything about that. No, it's not God. He did all of this so that Israel in the present time would serve the purpose of God's covenant intention. And what is that? It is to spread the gospel to all the world. What matters? What carries the saving plan forward, even though people let God down, is God's own mercy. Mercy is the key in these verses. This is how the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. So we, we close with this. Because we know the name I am, that is, God exists without anything outside himself determining his personality or power. Because we know the name God of mercy, that is, God does what he does without anything outside himself determining his choices. Because we know those names, we are commanded to go to a lost and dying world and proclaim what? The name of Jesus. That's what we're commanded to do. Proclaim the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. But before we go out there and just go, Jesus, Jesus loves, Jesus saves, we need to make sure we know what the name Jesus means. Jesus means Jehovah, the Savior. Jehovah is the eternal, ever-existing God. Jesus is Jehovah himself who became a man to be our salvation. Only Jesus can save man from sin. Only Jesus can save man from God's righteous judgment. That's why we call on the name above all names when it comes to salvation. Names are important. Amen. Go and proclaim the name of Jesus. He is full of compassion and mercy. Trust in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's right.